Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Dr. Larry Richard was among the first to apply the scientific principles of human behavior to the personality traits of lawyers. His work validates what those in the legal industry already know intuitively. Lawyers are autonomous, skeptical, and analytical, traits that challenge innovation efforts in the industry. But his work also opens the door for new ways to build resilience, empathy, and social connection, which are the key traits for dealing with large-scale changes set in motion by the pandemic. In today's fascinating conversation, Dr. Richard and I discuss how lawyers have fared over the last year of lockdown and what we can expect as we emerge from lockdown into a new reality. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here today with Dr. Larry Richard. Uh, Larry founded Lawyer Brain, which is a management consulting firm that serves the legal profession. Larry and his team at Lawyer Brain really use their psychology backgrounds to analyze the behavior of lawyers in things like change management, talent development, motivation, leadership. And so it's great to have you with us here today, Larry. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Steve. It's a delight to be here. How, uh, how have you handled the forced isolation of the pandemic? Well, for me, it's been actually a pleasure because uh, for 30 years, I've worked from home. So it's really not much different at all. The the real difference is I don't hop on planes anymore, and I don't miss that at all. In fact, it's been really a pleasant surprise to recognize how uh, my practice has shifted to a virtual practice. And, you know, there was a three-month very scary period in the beginning, and it's evened out since then. The other thing I'll say is that the kinds of work that I'm doing these days has shifted fairly dramatically. Well-being issues were always part of the mix, but they were a small part, and now they are by far and away the, the largest part of my practice. What challenges are you seeing in that respect as a result of the pandemic for lawyers? What, what are the well-being issues that you're confronting on behalf of your clients? Well, the first one is that there's a lot that's outside of our control that is causing some disruption. So you've probably heard me speak about the three fundamental human needs that we all have, which are all disrupted. It's very rare that one of these needs gets disrupted, but all three of them have been disrupted by the pandemic. Number one is the need for predictability and continuity. I'll come back to that because it's the most important. The second is the need to feel like we have some control in our lives. And the third is the need for connection. The need for predictability is so critical because our brain, every human brain has a threat sensing circuit, which is designed to test your environment in the background. You know, we're never really too aware of this circuitry, but it's always on, awake or asleep, and it's always checking to answer the question, is there anything that could hurt me or kill me? Or is there anything that's, you know, even mildly annoying? That threat circuitry is, is uh, testing for all kinds of challenges. In the current pandemic, we can focus on the idea that that threat sensing circuitry goes into its highest level of alert when any of three conditions are met. If the change or uncertainty is sudden and you know, unexpected, number two, if it's something that is outside of our control, and number three, if it has a serious potential to harm us or kill us. So what I'm basically saying is that that 
circuit in the brain uses uncertainty or change as its triggering mechanism. So when we're in a, a pandemic state like we're all in, all three of those needs get disrupted and we are basically walking around in a compromised situation. Our brains, especially the, the cognitive part of our brain, which is really the part that lawyers rely on the most, the ability to reason and to analyze and to think and to judge and to plan, that what's called the executive function, part of those functions are recruited by the threat sensing circuit because it's higher priority. And it's basically taking your analytical skills and saying, I wonder what could hurt me. I wonder what I can do about it, et cetera. That's why most of us are walking around feeling out of sorts. We don't feel like our full selves. We're, we're not entirely focused. We may be distractible. We may be irritable. We might even feel some more negative emotions. So that's all swirling around. And that's much of that is outside of our control. That's the backdrop that leads people to call me with questions like, how can we get our people to be more engaged? How can we deal with stress and uh, its consequences? How can we, you know, the opposite end, how can we build well-being and so forth? Well, I'm curious as to a lot of what you're talking about, I, I presume, applies to just humans as a general condition. Uh, but I know from your writing and from a lot of the stuff you put out there, that there are characteristics of lawyers that are unique from a personality standpoint that may have an impact in the pandemic more than other professions. Maybe you could just spend a couple of seconds talking about that. And, and then I've got a series of questions about where those differences come from. Are, are people who become lawyers, are they attracted to the profession because they're wired that way? Are they trained that way in law school and through the profession, or is it a little bit of both? So a compound question in there. Let's, let's start with a simple one. What are those unique characteristics of lawyers that are make it, make it more challenging in a pandemic environment? So you're absolutely right to ask that question because the, the disruptive needs, the, the interruption with our predictability, the interruption of our sense of control, and the interruption of our need for connection, those are universal. Every, everybody is subject to those disrupted needs. But lawyers suffer all three of those more severely than the average person. The need for predictability and continuity, we are risk-averse people. We're in a profession that's based on precedent. And so when predictability is disrupted, we take that harder than people who don't have that background and training. Number two, the need for control. Lawyers have an 89% autonomy score on average based on my data compared to 50% autonomy compared to the public. What does and that so mean? That means that we have an absolutely extraordinary need not to have people tell us what to do. We want to be the agents of our own experience. We don't want to have anyone giving us guidelines, which is why it's so hard to get people to turn in timesheets or to come to a meeting on time or, you know, you know the drill. I, I do indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and And so normally that's a good thing because people with high autonomy who choose law have chosen a profession that gives them ample opportunity to flex that autonomy muscle. People can practice in the legal profession very autonomously. And so it's a very good fit for high autonomy people. The downside of it, however, is when you have a crisis like we're in now, and there are a lot of constraints on our freedom. You know, you can't 
socialize, you have to do, you know, social distance six feet, you have to wear a mask, you can't go to ball games. All of those restrictions are normally unpleasant for people, but they're really, really stressful for high autonomy people. So we suffer that more. And then the third one, social connection, has got an interesting twist. Lawyers have traditionally had kind of an anti-touchy-feely gene. Anytime you say certain buzzwords, I'll list a couple of the popular ones, relationship, social, connection, intimacy, vulnerability, empathy, you name any of those words and lawyers will go, all right, here it comes, get ready for the touchy-feely BS, and they trivialize it and they devalue it, which, you know, is fine. That's what we've always done. And we, we kind of turn it into a, uh, almost a, a two-dimensional caricature of itself. But in the last 20 years, there's been really, really important research growing out of neuroscience research, cognitive neuroscience, and uh, social psychology. And what that research has shown is that social connection, the, the ongoing authentic relationships we have with people, is not only not trivial, but it's actually one of the single most important predictors of all the things that human beings want in their lives. Life satisfaction, work satisfaction, long-term relationship success, even physical well-being and good immune response is tied closely to how healthy our relationships are. And so the fact that we as lawyers largely ignore this area does a disservice to us. And in a time of COVID, we're not gaining the advantage of a better immune system that is conferred by these social connections. And the research even shows that the little day-to-day -day throwaway moments, you know, you're walking in your office down the hallway and you make eye contact with somebody. You poke your head into somebody's office and just say hi. You have a chat at the coffee machine about last night's Netflix. Those little moments seem like nothing. But in, it turns out that they accumulate and they produce actual physiological and hormonal changes that benefit us. They change our attitude and our mindset for the better. And so when we are working from home, we miss a lot of those interactions and we have a deficit. You know, it's interesting you say that. I, I've had a chance to talk to a couple of law school professors and I've sort of been asking them the same, how has it been teaching in a virtual environment? And consistently, they say what they miss most is what you just identified, which is those seemingly throwaway moments where the students may come up at the end of the class and just ask a question or say hello or come to an office. It's it, because they can replicate parts, virtually parts of the, of the teaching environment virtually, but they can't replicate those one-off moments. So it's interesting having you put exactly that aside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So to your second part of your question, uh, nature or nurture? Does this, do people come to law school already having these traits or does law school create these traits for them? And the answer is the arrow points both ways, but it's a bigger, thicker, stronger arrow pointing to the fact that there's already a sorting process before people enter law school. And so we don't know for sure if that means that people are sorted out by never applying to law school. There's never been a study done that shows that or that looks at that. Or if they apply and then once they get to law school, they drop out. We do have some research showing that people with certain personality traits 
that are less like lawyers drop out at a disproportionate rate, which further concentrates the lawyer-like qualities in those who remain. So that's part of the process. And then there's a third factor, which is certain traits, notably skepticism, which is the main trait that we are trained in law school. And let me back up a second. Personality traits are, we used to say they were half nature, half nurture, half genetic, half socially learned. But there's been about 25, uh, actually closer to 30 years now, of research on identical twins who were separated at birth and then reared separately and then discovered by psychologists who tested them with personality tests. And they discovered from these tests that personality is about 75% genetic and 25% learned. And it varies, of course, for particular traits. And that's actually what I'm leading up to. Skepticism is one of the exceptions to that. It's more learned than genetic. We're born trusting, which is the opposite. And we learn skepticism. So who learns skepticism? People who are immersed in a training program that says, let's help you spot issues. Spotting issues, which is what we're trained to be, you know, thinking like a lawyer, that's, what's, that's what thinking like a lawyer is, helps us to look for issues, problems, things that could go wrong, things that are wrong, which is terrific for protecting a client but it's toxic because psychologically it makes us much more vulnerable to clinical depression, anxiety, and loneliness. So as we spend, and you can see from data from first years have about a 20% higher skepticism score than the general public. By the time you get to third year, you're gonna see another 10% boost. And when we look at partners who've been practicing for 10 years, it goes all the way up to the 90th percentile as an average. So it starts at 50%, goes up to 70% in law school, maybe something just shy of 80 as they're getting out, and then another 10% over the next 10 years of practice. It's steadily increasing. Well, if that part is learned behavior, can it be unlearned or can it be shaped in a different way, either early on in career through law schools or by the time you become a partner and you're 90% or you just, you wired that way and you're just not going to believe anything anybody tells you? Well, the way I phrase it, and uh, sorry, this may be politically incorrect, but high skepticism is its own birth control. And the reason for that is theoretically, because it's a learned trait, we know that it can be unlearned. But if you go to a skeptic and say, hi, um, I'm ready to help you dial back your skepticism, their first reaction is, well, why the hell should I? <laughs> so that that's part of the problem. The second issue is you have environmental reinforcement. You, you're in a context where every day you're being rewarded for thinking skeptically. It's protecting your clients very well. You're surrounded by other people who are role modeling skepticism. Everything about the environment you practice in reinforces and validates and supports and creates a positive you know, vector for being skeptical. So why would anyone dial it back? The only people who dial it back are people like me who leave the profession. And then when we're out of the context, we are more influenced by what other surroundings we go into. So if you're like me, you go from law into psychology, you're in a very trusting environment and that dials it back, 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 back. What are those characteristics we need to be focused on taking it out of the pandemic for a moment? Larry, obviously, you've been studying lawyers for a long time and looking at the legal profession, and you know that there's been a dynamic in the profession now for 10 years about 
different types of organizations coming in and trying to drive change in the in the business discussions about we need to change the way we do legal services and we bump up against the human side of that change dynamic what did, what advice do you give organizations that are trying to rethink the way they deliver legal services about how to cope with this these characteristics of lawyers to try to get them to embrace at least at some level change dynamic so that is a very simple question with a very complex answer i'll see if i can do it justice change is difficult for people in general because of what i mentioned at the outset that continuity and predictability are nature's signaling system that things are okay and so we go you know we we seek and accept change only very cautiously um, because it, it carries some threat with it. That's people in general. Lawyers are even more resistant to change. So what do you do to overcome that resistance to change and the fact that you have an environment with all of the contextual signals that are telling us to stay, you know, keep, keep doing things the way we're doing them? Precedent is the heart of legal thinking. We're trained to rely on the way things have been done before. And that extends just from legal analysis of court cases to how we lead our lives. So that's another component that's keeping us very stable. And then how do you take people who, and I'm talking about big law here, how do you take people who are basically earning several million dollars a year and tell them that the way they're doing things is wrong and they've got to change? There are economic incentives to keep doing things the way we've been doing them. So all of that taken together makes it a very, very challenging thing to produce change, but it can be done. And there's a lot of good scientific research about how you do that. Let's start with a metaphor, which is from the basketball world. I'm thinking of the full court press. You can't just tell one guy, go out there and you know block this particular player. You have to put every person on your team in a single-minded blitz to produce change. And that means it starts at the top. You have to have the entire leadership team on board with a change. You have to make it very clear what it is that we're driving toward and what the payoffs for driving toward that new you know, status quo is. You have to raise some stress and anxiety about the status quo no longer being acceptable so that people start feeling, boy, we got to change. And I see the promise over the other side of the mountain. So there's some something pulling me and something pushing me off my uh, complacency. You also have to give people a pathway because if you just you know light a fire under them and show them a, a promised land, even those two things are not enough. You have to show, here's actually the steps that you're going to take. Then you have to have your leaders role model those steps. And you also should be doing that with your early adopters because there are always going to be for convenience sake, let's triage it and say people who are receptive to change, people who are kind of wait and see, and people who have their heels dug in and they're saying no way, no how. So the last group you ignore for now, you aim at the first group, the people who are receptive to change, which in a law firm is very, very few. And you hope that some of them are in your leadership team. They're the ones that need to set the tone. They need to initiate the change and hopefully show its payoffs especially the short-term payoffs, and then vociferously communicate those payoffs 
across the board so that the middle group, the people that are wait and see, start going, hey, this can actually be beneficial to me. And then you start building in change agents. You start building in influencers. Who are the people in each of our practices that tend to have greater influence? Other people tend to follow them. They're thought leaders. Work with those people, get them on board. So they start you know, moving. Now notice I haven't said anything so far about quote, incentivizing. Lawyers, the first change agent tool that they always reach for is incentivizing. Incentivizing is not in the playbook as a primary tool, at least not in the beginning, because it has a lot of history of being a very uneven and unpredictable tool. Using extrinsic rewards, either carrots or sticks, incentives or punishments, can produce very, very unexpected and undesirable consequences. It doesn't work the way we think it does. We, we all have intuitions about, quote, incentives. But there's been a lot of research on this starting in the mid-90s and accelerating significantly over the last 10 years. And that research shows that incentives are a poor tool for behavior change. Having said that, it is important to make sure you're not doing the opposite and unwittingly incentivizing complacency. So you do want to use, quote, incentives in the sense that if we are, let me give you the simplest no-brainer example. If I am in a sales organization and I say, folks, we got to work as a team. That's the only way we're going to succeed. By the way, here's the, the performance board. Oh, look, Harry has got more sales than anyone this month. Way to go, Harry. We're going to give you 5% extra in your paycheck. Well, by comparing you know, a leaderboard where each person's individual performance is what's clearly getting rewarded, and by highlighting that to the group, nobody even remembers that I said we have to work as a team because the incentives are pulling people in a different direction. So we have to stop that individual incentive that's at odds with the team message that we're putting out. But that's not the same thing as going all the way to the other end and trying to figure out some economic incentive for teamwork. So you're talking about removing the disincentives for teamwork, not necessarily creating separate incentives to drive team. You're trying to get it to be That's a neutral, right. neutral factor. That's right. Yep. You know, you work with a lot of different organizations, Larry, big law, legal departments. Now there's a whole group of organizations in the legal ecosystem. There's legal tech companies. There's what's referred to as alternative legal service providers. There's the big four. Do you see a difference in, well, I'll ask a question and I'll tell you the context for what I'm asking. And my question is, do you see a difference between the psychological dimensions for people who are attracted to these now wildly different organizations within the legal ecosystem? And the reason I ask the question is in talking to people who are involved in different aspects of the legal system, one of the characteristics I see is, I think I've heard the term polymath. Characteristically, people that are doing a lot of different things that they find interesting, whereas my experience is that's not typically a characteristic you find in big law. For example, there's a more single-minded pursuit. Are these psychological dimensions basically the same across these organizations, or are people sorting themselves into these different components of the legal ecosystem based on personality traits? So before I answer that, let's not forget to include legal operations because that's another 
Absolutely. Large group that deserves our attention and um, um, is is especially in in the corporate law department world is fueling some significant change in the way things are done in the practice of law. Absolutely. Um, so I don't have a lot of data. I have some legal operations uh, data on legal operations folks about their personalities. I don't have much on ALSPs and uh, other innovative providers, but I can tell you this, as a general rule, the research very clearly shows for a long time that people tend to gravitate toward jobs that line up with their personality. In fact, in vocational psychology, the number one mantra is that job satisfaction is a direct function of the goodness of fit between who you are and what you do. You know, if I, and, and that's largely organized around your values and your skill set and several other things, personality. Um, each of those can be lined up. In fact, I wrote a book about this about uh, seven, eight years ago about identifying your career identity. And if you can figure out what those components are of your values, your needs, your personality style, your skill set, figure those out. And then you have a set of criteria that you can use as a, kind of a, a checklist as you look at jobs and you can ask the question, is this a good fit for me? So given that job person fit model, it's safe to assume that people who go into ALSPs probably have a more entrepreneurial mindset, less of the risk aversion that typical law firm lawyers have, maybe even less skepticism. I'd be fascinated to profile people in the ALSPs uh, to see what that looks like. But unfortunately, I don't have that data, so I can only speculate. Fair enough. We've had a traditional environment, then the pandemic hits. We're in a forced set of isolation, virtual environment. Now, God willing, we're moving into a different phase of the pandemic where we're moving back to something different than what it's been for the last year. I think both you and I agree that it's not going to snap back to what it was 14 months ago, but it's not going to stay the way it is either. In a hybrid world that's partially virtual, partially in person, what advice do you give organization heads to think of? What do people need to be thinking about to make the best of that sort of hybridization of what we're likely to see? So the first thing, Steve, is to pay attention to the three disrupted needs because they will not be 100% restored when we return in a hybrid form. And so if you're a law firm leader or a law department leader, a general counsel, chief legal officer, you want to pay attention to what can we do to give people a psychological sense of predictability and continuity? What can we do to confer some control so that they feel like there's some domain in my world that I control, that I feel like I pull the strings. What can we do to foster connection among our people despite the virtual limitations, however many of them we may have in the final you know, version of the, the new workplace? And then on top of that, there's a lot of research on what engages people. And that engagement research overlaps with the disrupted needs to some extent, the autonomy, and the social connection are part of that research. But there are two other components that need to be added, which help increase engagement even when you're working virtually. 
So the first of those is meaning and purpose. We are meaning-making machines. Human beings need to feel like what I do matters. I make a difference in some way. And some people are more articulate about it than others. Some people think about it a lot. Some people think about it not at all until you poke them on the shoulder. But no matter what end of that spectrum people are on, everybody has a hardwired need to make meaning. And so those of us who are leaders in our organizations can consciously think, how do we train our people? How do we role model for our people? How do we mentor? How do we supervise people? And when we do those things, can we do it in a way that draws out the experience of here's a link between what you did, this, you know, get me a memo, a legal memorandum by 4 p.m. today, and here's how that data is going to be used. Here's the consequences of what you did. Here's how it plays out in the client's context. Here's why it matters. Here's why what you did made a difference. The more, and it's a simple thing. In some cases, it takes less time to do than it just took me to explain it. So helping people to draw connections between what they do and the effect that it has for the better is a very important thing, and it builds engagement. Not only the connecting piece, but it's also important that the person who's in the supervisory role doing that connecting have a very supportive, I've got your back kind of a mindset when they do that. I mean, if I'm a supervisor and I say, you know, I went to this damn seminar and I got to show you the, the, you know, the effect of your work. So here's the damn effect of your work. Have a nice day. That's not really going to get the benefit that we were hoping for of meaning right. and purpose. It has to be an attitude where, where the person who's being supervised or mentored feels like, boy, I, I can't believe I'm so fortunate that the person who is helping me really genuinely cares about my having a meaningful work experience. That, that's what makes the difference. And then the second piece is mastery, competence, and strengths. We all have certain things that we do well and certain things that we don't do as well. And some things we do extraordinarily well. We just, we don't even know how we do it. We're just, you know, gifted with certain things. And those are strengths. And when people get to use their strengths more often, more of the time, they are much more engaged at work. The Gallup organization has done extensive research on the use of strengths in the workplace. And they have shown a couple of interesting things. Number one, they've shown that the least engaged category, they, they look at three categories, highly engaged, engaged, and actively disengaged. And the actively disengaged is somebody who really resents the workplace. They feel like they hate going to work. They want to take revenge in some way. That active disengagement affects about 20 to 22% of the U.S. workforce. Not a good number. And it's probably a high higher number. in law firms. Yeah. yeah. So Gallup has found that when supervisors, when the culture of the organization is that supervisors use a strengths-based approach of development, let's figure out what you do well and help you do more of it and get better at it as opposed to a primarily deficiency-focused, let's fix what's wrong, that the strengths-based workplace not only reduces the active disengagement from 22%, but it reduces it to zero. It literally wipes out active disengagement. That's thing one. Thing two, Gallup has found that workplace engagement 
when you produce high levels of engagement by working on strengths, for example, or by producing meaning in the work or by giving people the autonomy or by producing connections and a feeling of belonging, those things are all on the table. But when you do that, you not only produce high levels of engagement, but you get a side effect without any extra effort that it boosts well-being. And conversely, if you focus on well-being and you do things to elevate people's well-being, it boosts engagement. And in workplaces where they do both, they get a synergistic two plus two equals five payoff in terms of both of those things. So it's a very interesting linkage that we didn't see before, at least not at a research level. Hmm. These, uh, these components you're talking about, Larry, seem to be, let, let me try to articulate it in a in layman's terms. One of the challenges I think we have in the profession is building trust between people in order to listen to each other and work better. All of these are components, it seems to me, of trusting relationships that that we need to have. Is, am I hearing that the right way? Well, you're right. Trust is is absolutely indispensable in a in a high functioning organization, and it's often absent in a dysfunctional organization. And it's something that we have a lot of control over. There are a lot of things that we do in the way we interact with people, in the way we supervise and mentor people, in the kind of climate we create, in the kind of role modeling we do, in the kind of expectations we set. All of those things are trust building or trust deteriorating interventions. There's a, a book um, by Paul Zak, Z-A-K, who's a neuroscientist, actually, and he studied the neuroscience of trust in organizations. And he's found that there are actually eight different factors which we have control over as leaders of organizations, which the more of these factors we you know, activate in the trust direction, the more it will build trust in the workplace. So it's a complex process, and you're right to suspect that some of the things we've been talking about are in that bucket of what builds trust, and there are others that we haven't talked about. Right. Let me change the topic just a little bit. I'm, I'm curious, uh, Larry, you started off your professional career as a lawyer, if I've got this right, and, That's right. and then chose to leave the profession to go and get your doctorate in psychology. What was it that sort of led you to make that change? Was there something about the profession that didn't resonate with you? You talked about looking at those components for your career. What, what, what led you to change your career? So I started in law because it's the only thing I've ever known. My grandfather was a superb lawyer. He was the old-fashioned kind of lawyer who studied law. Didn't, and, you know, he read law. He didn't go to law school. And he passed the bar exam from reading law and having a preceptor who was a, mm -hmm. a, a Philadelphia lawyer, literally, Philadelphia lawyer. And, and then my father, several of my aunts and uncles, most of my cousins, they were all lawyers. In fact, I'll tell you the, the family joke. When I had just graduated law school a couple of years, I was in practice, and we're sitting around the Thanksgiving table, and we had about 22 people from our extended family, and 14 of us were lawyers. Um, oh, my goodness. You know, you can imagine like like if somebody says pass the butter, it could take half an hour before you actually got the butter. Um, <laughs> so my my Aunt Evie was sitting at the table and she was not a lawyer, but her father was and her son, her husband, her son, her daughter, all lawyers. 
So she gets this astonished look on her face, puts down her fork, and she says, oh, my God. And the whole table just is silent. And they're like, what? She says, it just dawned on me. I'm the only one in my entire family who never says in any event. <laughs> so <laughs> so this, this, this gives you a little idea about the, uh, the climate I grew up in. So I just assumed law would be fun. It would be stimulating. So I got into a very good law school, University of Pennsylvania. Um, I got very good grades. I got a job in the honors program of the uh, the attorney general uh, in the Department of Justice in Pennsylvania when I got out of law school. And I thought, I'm, I'm just ready for bear. And I just found the next two years the most stultifying two years of my life. I couldn't stand it. There was, after a few weeks, I found myself getting up later and later and dragging myself out of bed and going, oh, I can't believe I have to go to work. And then looking at the clock slowly drag those hands move. We, we had some sort of a, a bizarre clock, I'm sure, because the hands in our clock move very slowly compared to clocks in any other workplace. And, <laughs> uh, and I finally couldn't stand it. And I, I left and ended up having a series of jobs, which I lasted no more than about a year in, in each job each one trying to find some better job. And they were all litigation jobs. And what I finally realized after 10 years of jumping from litigation you know, job to litigation job is I just don't like fighting with people. That's not what turns me on. Right. And yeah, to some extent, the intellectual challenge in some of the cases was interesting, but it wasn't enough to outweigh the deficit of the part I disliked. And so I had this crazy idea that I knew my mother was a uh, in the theater area. She was a lyricist. And we had a almost a second home in New York. We, we spent a lot of time there. We knew a lot of people there. So I moved to New York and I ended up getting connected with the theater community and uh, worked for actually Barbara Walters' ex-husband, Lee Goober, who was an impresario in the theater world. Really? And uh, yeah, I spent a year working for him. And it was a very interesting job. But he found out I was a former practicing lawyer, and he wanted to give me legal stuff. And uh, <laughs> I, didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to have anything to do with that. And then he had a literally a flop that opened and closed on the same night. It reminds me very much of uh, Mel Brooks' movie, The Producers. And uh, he, he lost a lot of money on it and fired the whole crew the next Monday morning. And uh, I found myself in New York out of work. And I did the only thing I knew what to do, which was open a law practice. And I started representing theatrical people. And I found out, since this was a completely transactional practice, I realized this is actually better than litigation. And I still don't like it. Mm -hmm. And so after, after a year of that, quite fortuitously, the empty office across the hallway from mine had a sign painter on it one day, and they were painting a sign that two psychologists were moving into that office. And I happened to meet them in the elevator the next day and had this conversation. They said they do career counseling. And I said, well, that sounds really interesting. Can I uh, barter with you? I'll help you create some you know, contracts for your new business and uh, you know, get you registered with the New York Bureau of Corporations and do some other stuff. 
and uh, you teach me this some of this career counseling stuff. And they agreed. And I got so taken by it that I went and got further training in career counseling and actually started a career counseling practice for unhappy lawyers in New York. We teach best what, what we most need to learn. And so that put me on the path of leaving law in the rearview mirror. And the one year I spent you know, trying out the career counseling was so much more enjoyable to me. And at the end of that year, I said, I don't feel qualified to do this. I need a, a PhD in psychology. And so I applied, got in, except I applied originally to clinical programs because that's all I knew. And a friend of mine from high school had gone and gotten a degree in organizational psychology at Temple, Temple University. And um, I said, what's, what's organizational psychology? He said, it's like doing therapy with a company instead of a person. And when he said those words to me, it was like the, the, the heavens opened. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to do organizational psychology for the legal profession. I didn't even know what that meant at the time. But that's where I earned my degree. I went to the same program he did. I earned a PhD in organizational psychology. Along the way, even though it's not organizational, I fell in love with personality profiling and actually did my doctoral dissertation on the personality traits of US lawyers in a survey that studied lawyers and 3,000 lawyers across the entire country. This was in the, the early 90s. I was fascinated ever since about how personality is different for the people that go into this profession than it is for the public. And that's been just a constant, you know, unvarying um, observation. The people who go into law consistently are atypical compared to the public, and they're very, very typical compared to each other. And those differences, those oddball outlierish traits that people who go into law have make us well-equipped to practice law but make it very challenging for us to be in other roles, especially relationship-based roles like leadership, mentoring, rainmaking, colleague, supervisor, all of those roles. Aren't, it's not impossible. It's just made more challenging. And in fact, the better you are as a lawyer, the harder it's going to be to do these other roles successfully. Well, Larry, that's a, that's a fascinating journey you've been on. And it's, uh, it's interesting to to listen to people describe sort of those moments, almost the serendipitous moments when the psychiatrists move into the office next door and, and there you go, you've moved down a career that's adding really tremendous insights into the profession. We've run out of time, but I want to extend my thanks to you for a, really a fascinating conversation. And for those that are interested in learning more, go to lawyerbrain.com where you'll see a whole host of valuable information posted by Larry and the team, as well as how to contact him. Larry, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Steve, in any event, it's been a pleasure. Okay. <laughs> oh, my 14 lawyers. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Larry. In any event, it's been great. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.